You are listening to the Tom Eliff Podcast. Tom Eliff pastored for 42 years and was also the president of the International Mission Board and the Southern Baptist Convention. He is the founder of Living Word Publications. Now, here is Tom Eliff. We are on a journey through the 37th Psalm. It happens to be my favorite psalm. And I've discovered since then that it happens to be the favorite psalm of several other people who are in our church. And we're really having a wonderful time. I am, anyway, going through this. And, and uh, I've encouraged you to join with me in memorizing this psalm. It's not all that long, as a matter of fact, 40 verses. And we've been in it now for three weeks and going to be in, in it one more week. And I would encourage you to at least digest so that you can meditate on these verses of Scripture. This 37th Psalm, a wonderful psalm that tells us how to live positively in a negative world. You know, there's so many, there's so many negative things going on in the world today. I, I was called uh, this afternoon. This, this, you'll be interested in this phone call, especially you folks who are members of First Southern will be interested in this phone call. I was called by a lady who uh, was just uh, panic-stricken and uh, she was saying how uh, her daughter had gotten caught up in a, uh, she thought it was a cult, really. I, I'm not sure that it is a cult, but she thought it was a cult and how uh, she just disappeared for a couple of weeks. And she didn't know where her daughter is and how she got a, uh, a phone call just uh, from her daughter in which she was just whispering, Mother, you know, come and, and help me and rescue me and we're, we're, we're trapped and I don't know how to get out of this. It's a teenage girl. And uh, uh, she's, she, when she called, uh, she said, uh, Preacher, she said, I've, I've called the police and because she's an older teenager, you know, they say, well, there's really nothing we can do. And she said, I've tried to call other people and this lady doesn't live in Oklahoma City property, lives outside of Oklahoma City. And uh, she said, so I thought I would call you. And I said, well, why? Did you decide to, to call me? And she said, well, really, the truth of the matter is, she said, I called one of the local television stations that has one of these uh, deals that's in your corner or whatever it is. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I can get some action out of those folks. And she said, they told me that they couldn't help me either. And she said, I guess I was upset that the guy on the other end of the phone said, I'll tell you what, though, if you'll call the folks down at First Southern, I think they might be willing to give you some help. And I thought, well, that's a good news about First Southern, but it's bad news, isn't it, to think about a young girl, a teenage girl, just being carried away in a matter of two weeks in a cult, and her family doesn't even know where she is now. And here she's calling to be rescued. It's a negative world we live in. But how can we live positively in a negative world? That's, uh, that is the focus of the 37th Psalm. Now, we have come to a passage of Scripture, beginning with verse 18 and continuing down through verse 33, that tells us how our eternal destiny affects our earthly behavior. And you remember uh, what I said last Sunday morning, that, that there are many people who believe that you can become a Christian, but that you can then lose your salvation some point along the way. Now, they're not sure how or when or how many sins or how big the sins have to be, but they think you can lose your salvation after you receive it. So for them, it's not eternal life. It's just, uh, uh, you know, a brief life unless you, in their mind, they think they can behave well enough to keep something that they didn't get by their behavior anyway. I mean, salvation comes by the grace of God, and whatever it takes to get it is what it takes to keep it, which is the grace of God. But somehow they believe you're saved by God's grace, but you keep it by behaving well, as if we could really impress God with our behavior. A lot of people who believe that. And when you tell them that 
people who are born into God's family are eternally secure, they'll say, oh, no, 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 uh, it can't be, because after all, if, if that were the case, then a person would go out and live like the devil once they receive salvation. Well, you try to tell them how uh, when Christ comes into your heart, old things pass away and all things become new. Or you try to tell them how the Scripture says that what you receive is eternal life. You can never lose it. But they keep coming back. They keep saying, oh, but, you know, you've got to have that fear of going to hell to make you behave well. Well, as we've already seen, that is not the great motivation to behaving well. Fear motivates all of us a little bit, but never for very long and never very well. And so uh, you, God does not intend for us to operate our lives from the standpoint of fear. What he does say is this. When Christ comes into your heart and changes you, it is a change. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. And several things change in your life. Well, in fact, everything changes, but there are several evidences that Christ has come into your life. And so we're looking at seven of these evidences here in the 37th Psalm. So will you stand with me for the reading of the Scripture? And I'm not going to read the entire text, which is verses 18 through 33, but let me just read the verses that pertain to the portion of the message that I want to share about this evening. In verse 31, it says of the man, this is the righteous man as opposed to the wicked man, the person who is born again, the person who lives by faith, as opposed to the person who has rejected God, the counsels of God, the life that God has to offer him. Notice what he says about him in verse 31, the law of his God is in his heart, none of his steps shall slide. And notice what he says in verses 32 and 33 about his foes or his enemies. He says, the wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. Now, that's pretty negative, but look at how the righteous lives positively. The Lord will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him when he is judged. So you can live positively in this negative world. Father, I pray now trusting that as your word is open this evening, as we begin to search your word, that you will speak to us through your Holy Spirit's working in our lives. Lord, if you choose to use this preacher, that's wonderful. I'd, I'd love it if you did. But Lord, I realize you can speak directly by your Spirit through the pages of this scripture to the heart of any person here. And Father, whatever it takes to bring about a change in any of our lives, that's what we desire. That's what we want. And so we're trusting, Lord, that you will move in this place tonight in the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' wonderful and matchless and saving name. Amen. Now, as we have journeyed through these, this particular cluster of verses, remember that I said Psalm 37 cannot be easily outlined because it, uh, it moves just according to a thought pattern. He begins sharing a, at a certain, on a certain issue, and that leads to other thoughts, and that leads to other thoughts, all inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course. But we have come to a cluster of verses, verses 18 through 33, that compare the wicked and the righteous and show us how, to, how our eternal destiny will affect our earthly decisions or our earthly behavior. We notice, first of all, that it affects us in the area of our fears. We have learned how we can conquer our fears. And then we notice that there was a word about our finances in verses 21 and 22. If you're on your way to heaven, something happens to your pocketbook on the way. And we saw the cautions about our finances, how a wicked borrows and doesn't pay, but how the righteous shows mercy 
and gives. Then there was a word about our future. We learned that we could have confidence in our future because the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord, and he delights in his way. And even if he falls, he will not be utterly cast down because the Lord upholds him with his hand. We also learned about our uh, family, how we could express concern for our family. And if you're truly born again, what do we discover about our family? We discovered that our priority is to be right with God, that the best thing you can do for your family is, first of all, for you to be right with God. He says, I've been young and I'm now old. I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed, in other words, his offspring, begging bread. And so the best thing you can do for your family is to be a righteous person. And then we learned that it affected us in the area of our friends, the counsel that we give our friends. We notice that the mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom and his tongue talks of judgment. So one of the ways we know we're on our way to heaven is by the things we talk about when we discuss things with our friends. Now, we're down to the last two of these seven areas that are affected by the fact that we are on our way to heaven, our eternal destiny affecting our earthly behavior. Notice, number six, that it affects us in the area of what I want to call our focus. It gives clarity to our focus. Now, I'm going to have to read this verse of Scripture for you to understand what I mean by clarity to our focus. Notice verse 31, the law of his God is in his heart, none of his steps shall slide. How do you tell when a man or a woman is truly born again? You young people, how do you know for sure when you're on your way to heaven? Well, there are a lot of ways. The witness of God's Spirit is one of the ways. Uh, we know by our outward profession. We know by the promises of God. But one of the ways you can know that you're on your way to heaven is by what you give your attention to, the focus in your life. What is it that really grabs your heart? You know, there are a lot of things out there clamoring for your attention and for my attention, right? I mean, there are all kinds of things just begging for our attention. There are agencies which spend multiplied millions of dollars designing programs that will effectively do what? Capture our attention. I mean, if you can just hold the attention of a person for a few minutes, you have done an amazing thing. And so, I mean, it's big business capturing people's attention. I was uh, uh, on an airplane uh, Monday, this, just this past Monday evening, and uh, I was reading uh, uh, one of these business magazines, and it was telling how uh, Coca-Cola Company had changed from an ad agency that they'd used for many years to a new ad agency. And one of the reasons was they felt that the new agency, and they're going to spend multiplied millions of dollars with it, had a series of ads that would more effectively capture our attention regarding that product. And so how do you know when a person is truly born again? One of the ways you know is by what you're giving your attention to. To what do you give your attention? What is your focus? Well, a truly born-again person is very clear in his focus. Notice what he says. He says, the law of his God is in his heart. So, first of all, what do you concentrate on if you're born again? You concentrate on the Scripture. That's your focus. The Scripture is something that you love. My 
my wife is a, uh, uh, you know, she, she, she is a good reminder to me of this. Some of you have heard her testimony know how uh, we were, in fact, married for five years before she actually was born again. I mean, she had made a decision early in life and always called herself a Christian, but had never really truly repented of her sins. And she and I would talk about this from time to time before she was saved, and I would always convince her that she truly was a Christian. I mean, you've got to be. To be as pretty as she is and married to me, I thought a preacher. I mean, you're a preacher's wife, you're beautiful, and there's not a mean bone in her body. Well, I said, you've got to be a Christian, but she wasn't. I mean, she was just a, a very well-educated and beautiful lost person. And um, one of the things, though, that radically changed about her life when she was saved is that God gave her a voracious appetite for his word, for the Bible. Before that, I would give her Christian books, and she'd say, well, that's interesting, and she'd read a little bit of it and put it down. We, we'd, you know, get in there. How are you doing on your quiet time day by day? Well, that's, you know, I'm sort of going through the Bible, and I'm trying to be disciplined and so forth. And that was sort of the way it was relative to the Word of God. But I'll tell you what, when she met the Lord Jesus, God just put in her heart a hunger for His Word. I mean, daily. It, it, it sometimes, as she has said to me on occasion, she said, you know, if I just had my way, I'd just sit all day and read the Word of God. I love the Word of God. And so what does the Scripture say here? It says a person who is really a righteous person is a person in whose heart is the law of God, the Scripture. Um, now, where is it? It's in your heart. What is your heart? Your heart is your intellect. That's what you think about. It's your emotions. That's how you feel. And it's your volition or your will. That's where you make your choices. So the law of God is what you think about. The law of God is what your heart is moved to obey. The law of God affects your will. You determine you're going to obey the Word of God regardless. Um, do you remember that verse of Scripture over in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, that says this book, uh, God is telling Joshua how he can succeed as the uh, man who follows Moses. Now, that's pretty big order. The Bible says, of all the people on the earth, there was none so meek as Moses. I mean, here's a man who really, for 40 years, was so filled with God and such a leader that several million Israelites are willing to follow him around in the wilderness, not even because they always agreed with him, but just because he was, he was a leader. They could see God in his life. Some, many times they all disagree with him for all practical purposes, but they followed him nonetheless. And so now here's Joshua, who is supposed to take Moses' place. And God gives him, just in a nutshell, a formula for success. What does he say? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night, and you shall, that you may observe to do all that is written therein. For therein you shall make your way prosperous, and therein you shall find good success, he says. What's the key? Meditating on the Word of God. What does it say in Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And it's in that law that he meditates both day and night, and he will be like a tree that is planted by rivers of water, 
Man, I'm rubbing one river's enough for any tree, but this is a tree planted, firmly planted by rivers of water. One runs out, the other one won't. They'll always have enough. So what is the issue here? A person who is truly born again is a person who has this appetite. That is his concentration. His concentration is on the Word of God and upon the God of the Word. Now, let me ask you a question. How much of your life do you give to focusing upon the Word of God, to reading the Word of God, to digesting the Word of God, to memorizing the Word of God? How much of your life do you give to that? I mean, what is your, if you just took it right now, if you just took your approach to the Word of God for the last three days, what testimony would that give about whether you were truly born again? Your approach to the Word of God. You know, you've seen that little uh, uh, saying that says, uh, sin will keep you from this Word, but this Word will keep you from sin. Well, what is your appetite for the Word of God? What testimony does that give about whether you're truly born again? Because it says of here that the righteous man that the law of his God is in his heart. That's his concentration. Notice his confidence. None of his steps shall slide. Isn't that amazing? None of his steps shall slide. Why? Because the law of God is planted in his heart. Um... I tell you, it's, a, it's an amazing thing what a difference there is in your life if you consistently give time to the Word of God and in your life when you do not consistently give time to the Word of God. Now, let me just use a very simple illustration, and I believe everyone here this evening will grasp this. God is interested in... Uh, in knowing that we have a heart to obey Him, right? Now, having a heart to obey somebody means wanting to hear what that person is saying because how can you obey something that you, that you never listen to? So, you know, I've had parents tell me that the most aggravating thing their children do, they said, I'll just be talking to them and they'll walk away from me. Well, that's, that's what Christians do. Don't, don't read the Bible. God is speaking to us, and we just, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm just, you know, man, what an insolent child. You know, hey, come back. You know, you have parents that come back here. I, I was talking to you. Don't you walk away when I'm talking to you like that. And, and yet, when you don't read the Bible, and I don't read the Bible, you're walking away from God who's talking to you. Now, you could turn around and say to that parent, well, I'll do what you tell me, but see, that's not having a heart to obey. See, a person who will not consistently study the Word of God misses God in little areas. But those little areas become really big areas. Now, let me, let me give you an illustration, okay? Let's suppose you're a parent and you have a child and, uh, you know, you walk by the child's room and the bed's not made, let's say. Okay, you say, make up the bed. And the child says, um, okay, you know. And you say, look, you know, when you leave every day, you just make sure that the room's picked up and make up your bed. Okay. And then you walk by um, uh, the next day, and the bed's not made. And um, you say, make up your bed. You know, the, the deal is, every day, make up your bed. 
And, and then you walk by the next day and the bed's not made. Now, the bed, that's a little deal, isn't it? But let me ask you what that says. What that is saying is there's something wrong in the relationship because there is not a heart to obey and eagerness to obey. You know what that child ends up? There ends up developing probably resentment, probably a lot of, a lot of arguments about the bed. You know, the stupid little bed, just a little old thing like that. But in, the, in, in, in that whole process, that child could miss all kinds of things. I mean, the parents think, well, did I, you know, buy a car or something like that? And they say, well, no, because he doesn't have a heart or she doesn't have a heart to obey me. And so you see, a little, it's just a little thing, but what the parent is looking for is, do you have a heart? All right, now, there's all kinds of little things out there in life. What God is looking for in your life, man, is do you have a heart to obey me? Is your heart after me? Now, if your heart is after me, don't walk away from me when I'm talking to you. Well, where are you talking to me? Through the Scripture every day I'm talking to you. I'm sharing with you about the way you ought to live. And if you will do that, I will see that your steps don't slide. You see, that's what he's saying here. Your concentration is to be on the Word of God. The confidence is this. If it is, your steps won't slide. You say, well, why are you making such a big deal out of it, preacher? Because that is one of the ways you know whether you're one of the righteous. It's whether you like to indulge in righteous literature, which is the Word of God. You know, I'll guarantee you I know men who read every, every sentence of the sports page. But you ask them, how is it going between you and the Word of God? Boy, for some reason, I just can't stay awake. When I read, well, you know, why don't you try reading your Bible when you read your newspaper? What about that? You probably usually read it in the morning and read your Bible at night. Why don't you swap, swap that up and just keep the newspaper? Read the good news first and the bad news later. How about that? You say, well, it won't mean anything then. Well, let me ask you this. Are you listening? Let me ask you this. Are you telling me that it means more to you to read what some fallible editor is going to say in a paper in the morning than what the infallible God says to you in the morning? Which is most newsworthy? Let me ask you, the Word of God or the newspaper? Hey, I like to read the newspaper in the morning, but which is the most newsworthy? It's the Word of God. Which is the most pertinent? The Word of God. Which is the most relevant? The Word of God. Which is going to keep your steps from sliding? The Word of God. Not the sports page, not the ads, not the front page. By the way, if you miss it, you can get it on a car five times before you get it to work. And it'll be there when you get home. Have you ever done this? Have you ever gone a week without reading the paper? Did the world go someplace that you didn't know about? Got back, lo and behold, things are still going on. Can't believe the life's still going on. And I didn't even read the newspaper for a week. Somehow I think the world can't turn unless I read the newspaper. I'll tell you what, your life can't be right unless you read the Word of God. And so a person who is one of God's righteous people is a person who has as his focus, his concentration, the Word of God, because in it, his steps won't slide. All right, now, one final thing. It has to do with your foes. We've said it affects what? Your fears, your finances, your future, your family, your friends, your focus, finally, your foes. It's your foes. It has to do with your consideration of your foes, how you look at your enemies. And there are enemies. That's why this is a negative world. All right, out there... Of course, the Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in the very atmosphere. But notice what he says here about the wicked people. Wicked, the wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. 
Let me, let me tell you what's happening in our society. Now, listen. We ought to do everything we can to prevent this, okay? We ought to do everything that we can to prevent this. But here is how it always, always goes. And that's, this is why we are uh, in a very, very unusual time in our nation relative to the Christian faith and its influence in our society. Here are the steps, okay, uh, in, in terms of the Christian faith as it relates to a nation. First of all, there is, uh, there is ridicule. People ridicule the Christian faith. Oh, that's the funny thing. You Christians? Oh, man, that's the stupidest thing. Christians, okay? Now, they just make fun of, mock Christianity. All right? From ridicule, it moves to criticism. You Christians, you're involved in too many things. You're trying to steal our government. You're doing this. You're doing that. You Christians need to get... You know. hey, has it ever occurred to you that... Christians are the only people in the whole United States that so many jokes can be told about. Hey, you get on a TV talk show and you try telling jokes about people of a different race or people of any other religion or anybody, you can't get away with talking about them like you talk about Christians. You can say anything you want about Christians. You can mock them, you can mock them, make fun of them. I mean, the rest of those people, they'd be in the courts filing for their rights, but not about Christians, man. You can say the wildest, obscene, terrible things about Christians. So there's ridicule, then there's criticism. You all are messing up our life, and then there's persecution. That's the way it goes. Ridicule, criticism, persecution. That's just the way it goes. And, and the whole of history shows that. Now, you say, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be everything God intends for us to be. We're supposed to be salt. We're supposed to be light. We're never to submit. We're never to reduce ourselves to their tactics, but we're to use the tactics of God to be everything we can at any moment in our community. We ought to shake this community for God. I mean, we ought to literally do what we can to capture this community for Christ. Now, but out there, notice what he says here. He says, the wicked watches the righteous... And the word watches there, some of you may have in your, your translation, spies, spies on the righteous. The wicked spies on the... He's, he's watching. I'm going to figure out how to trap him. We, we're going we're to figure out some way to, uh, to trap him. I heard someone say, I think it was last week, which of these statements is true in Georgia? Which of these statements is true in Georgia? Uh, you get suspended from school for inviting someone to an FCA meeting or the Bible is a required course in every high school, which is true in Georgia. Which? What? Suspended from school? Well, the truth of the matter is both of them are true. In the state of Georgia in the United States, Recently, a young man was suspended for inviting a friend to an FCA meeting. But in the Republic of Georgia, over in the former Soviet Union, now the Bible is a required textbook in uh, every class. Interesting, huh? Or in every high school. Okay, the wicked, what does he do? He spies, he looks for ways 
to just slaughter the righteous, okay? The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. There was a period in the history of the United States when Christians would have laughed at this, right? Well, now you look at it and say, hmm, this is is probably true. All right, so, but notice this statement. He says, the Lord will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him when he's judged. All right, now, two statements I want to make, and then we bring this to a close. In regard to your foes, okay, two things you need to know. Ultimately, ultimately, an earthly uh, foe never has power over the Christian. Ultimately, an earthly foe never has power over the Christian. What does he say here? He says the Lord will not leave him in his hand. So if you spend all of your time just fighting earthly foes and never really getting up to the level of spiritual warfare, if you constantly spend your time fighting earthly foes, you are fighting people who are never going to gain the victory over you ultimately anyway. You follow what I'm saying? I mean, you, you, you spend all your time saying, well, that man did this to me and that company did that to me and this person did this to me and they said that to me and you're going you're gonna to try to argue back with them. Hey, listen, you are fighting against people who are never ultimately going to have power over you anyway because you're a Christian. You are a citizen of another kingdom. You see? Now, the interesting thing about this is, and here, here's what's even more intriguing, he says not only will they not have power over you ultimately, but they can never convince God to be against you. You see, one of the reasons that we, we get entangled in these big arguments sometimes with, with friends or people where we work or something like that is, is we think, you know, when they start criticizing us that, uh, that they are so effective and that because they've got all their friends believing whatever they believe about us, we think they're so effective that maybe even God is going to be fooled by this. But what does the Scripture say here? He says, not only will the Lord not leave him in his hand, nor will he condemn him when he is judged. So while these earthly people say, well, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you're condemned, God says, but wait a minute, you're not the judge. I'm the judge. And as far as I'm concerned, that child has been washed in the blood, made as pure as a driven snow, and will spend his forever with me in heaven. You can condemn him all you want, but your word is not the last word. Now, the reason I say that is because some of you all are involved in situations right now where you feel like people are against you or things are not going your way, judgment, you know, you feel because maybe of some stand you've taken as a Christian. Well, let me remind you, ultimately, no earthly power has authority over... You know, you said, wait a minute, Brother Tom, now what, aren't we supposed to be subject under the authority? Yes, I'm not talking about that. Government and so forth, yes. But what I'm saying is ultimately... God is not going to leave you in their hand, ultimately. You say, well, give me a picture of that. Well, I just spoke about the Soviet Union a while ago. I mean, just a few years ago, everybody said, hey, they got a death grip. What about Red China? They got a death grip on Christianity. I mean, just squeezing the life out. Hey, what's happened ultimately? Ultimately, the victims have become the victors. The captives have become the captors. Now, you see what's happening? Ultimately, I mean, you've got to let God move this thing inexorably in his time. So if you spend your time just thinking, I've got to answer every critic, I've got to respond to every foe, I've got to make sure everybody is put down if they've been critical. Hey, forget that. Forget it. 
Your job is to keep your focus upon the Lord Jesus and remember, my life is in his hands. And the final word is God's word, not this man's word, not that company's word, not that classroom, not my, the word of my peers. Ultimately, it is God who is my judge. And he is the one to whom I answer. And so when you're born again, you serve with a different consciousness in regard to your foes. You realize that uh, in the midst of all that, God's in charge. God's in charge. And I say that I know some of you all come from situations at stores where you work, where people have been down your throat all day long. But God will give you a different way of loving, learning from His Word. It helps you to see how to respond to your enemies. How do you respond to your foes? Well, does knowing Jesus change your life? Absolutely. Changes you in regard to your fears, changes you in regard to your finances, changes you in regard to your future, changes you in regard to your family, changes you in regard to your friends, changes you in regard to your focus, and changes you in regard to your foes. You're a different person. Your earthly behavior is affected by your eternal destination. Well, are you on your way to heaven? That's a big question, isn't it? I mean, can you say tonight, I'm on my way to heaven? I mean, I've had that change. Christ has entered my heart, and he is my Savior, and he's the Lord of my life. Well, if you can't say that just yet, but you'd sure like to say that, then what we're going to do in a few moments, we're going to stand, we're going to sing together um, a hymn of invitation, and this really is your personal invitation to come to Christ. That's right, and we're going to have some counselors and then, not down the center. I'll come down the center. I'll go to either side. We'll have some counselors on either side here. And I want to encourage you just to come and find one of these counselors and uh, just say, look, I want my life changed or I want to give my heart to Jesus. I want those changes in my life. You talk about all these differences. Do you mean knowing Christ? Yes, makes those differences plus heaven, plus eternal life, plus forgiveness of sin, plus purpose in life, all those things. What a wonderful thing it could be if you would receive Christ tonight. You say, how do I do that? In a matter of moments, these counselors will share with you. I mean, before you leave this room, you can know Christ is your Savior and the Lord of your life. And you're on your way to heaven. That could happen tonight. And I would encourage you to come. I would encourage you to bring your friends. Or maybe encourage your friend to come with you. Say, look, go down the aisle with me. Some of you just need to simply come and kneel across these steps here at the front and just pray that God will... Uh, minister to your life and the lives of your friends. There's some tonight to whom the Lord is speaking about joining this church, and I would encourage you just to make your way down here as a family or as an individual. Find one of these counselors and say, look, I want to join this church or we want to join this church. There's some who haven't been introduced, like this dear brother who was uh, baptized tonight, and since you joined this church or were baptized, you've not been introduced to your church family. I'm going to ask you to come and just be seated over here where it says seating for new members, all right? But this is your invitation time. What a difference Christ makes in our lives. Let's stand together with heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, I just pray now, trusting in these moments that you will do your work in our lives. Bring people to this altar to say yes to you. I pray in Jesus' wonderful and matchless and saving name. Amen.